0: Someone asked me this morning how France was, and I was like, I don't know how France was. Well, didn't you just come back from France? And I said, no, I didn't, and it was a misunderstanding. Twitter does that. But anyway, if I could be anywhere today, it would be in Paris. Today's the last day of the Tour de France. That's where you'd want to be too, right? I could be anywhere today, it would be in Paris to, to watch, you know, sometime in my life just to watch at least a couple, couple stages of the tour as it is called. If I ask you where you'd want to be, if you could be anywhere today, you may say Paris, you may say somewhere else, maybe the mountains, maybe the lake, maybe the ocean, uh, but we always want to be somewhere and get away and enjoy some amazing experience. When it comes to the long haul and the big picture and all the dust is settled, when it comes to importance, there's no place I would rather be today than 7940 State Street in a weird metal building next to 680. There's no place I would rather be than here today, and there's no place you would rather be, trust me in light of what we are going to hear Jesus say. Because what Jesus says will change your life forever. In this life and in the next life. What he says is pertinent or relevant to believers and unbelievers. What he says about himself is amazingly profound. The comfort that it can bring to you as a believer will see you through to the very end like nothing else can I promise and what i'm referring to is what jesus says in the 14th chapter of the gospel according to john so if you want to turn to the 14th chapter of the gospel according to john you'll see what i mean it's really quite amazing What's happening at this point in Jesus' earthly ministry is he's ready to go to the cross. It's, it's the, the, the final, final hours. He's going to leave. And think about this if you're one of the disciples. The one who says he is the way to eternal life, the one who says He's the son, the one who says if you believe in me, you'll never thirst again, even spiritually, the one who's been saying all these things is now telling his followers he's going to leave. And if you don't understand all the intricacies, and they don't, that's not good. If he is that one, and he's going to leave you, then you're without. This is terrible. This is tragic. If you don't understand the big picture, and they don't. But he's going to help them. And as he helps them, it's amazing what he says about himself. And it's amazing how what he says about himself is to influence the way they live their daily lives. And the same is true for us as followers of Christ living later. So this is a re- we're going to review John 14, 1 to 14, and then we're going to move into some new territory. But we didn't get done last time, so we're going to review quickly and then move into some new territory. But even as we review, I promise to give you new stuff. Okay, so just, just, just so you're aware of that. Here's the command from Jesus. The first command in John 14:1: let not your hearts be troubled. It's a nice command, it's not a stop-it command in a mean sense. It's don't let your heart be troubled. You you don't have to be devastated by what's going to happen to me, what's going to happen to you, what's going to happen later. Don't be devastated. There's something that I'm going to tell you that will allow you to be steadfast deep down at the core of your being to not be unsettled. Think about that. If you could offer that to people, what's it going to be? You wouldn't even have to be on late night television to sell that. To to give something to someone that would cause them to not be troubled. To not be wrenched by anxiety and turmoil and unsettledness. Don't let your hearts be troubled, Jesus says to his followers. In the midst of all the trouble. Then he says, verse 1, believe in God. Trust in God. Rest in God. Have confidence in God is what that means. Believe also in me. Super simple. Super important. Psalm 139 was our scripture reading. It's a good place to go. Believe in God. Days are numbered before they begin. Cares personally. Not aloof. Yes, he's sovereign and grand and great, and you can never get away from him and all of that sort of thing, but he cares personally. So he says, Believe in God. Don't let your heart be troubled because you can have confidence in this God, this personal God who is for you if you're trusting in Christ. And then he says, Believe also in me, which is a huge statement about the uniqueness of Jesus, about who he is. He's the unique son. To believe in Him the same way you'd believe in God says Jesus is not a mere mortal. Not to mention what He's doing and what He's going to do. Believe in Christ. And if you believe in Him, you don't have to let your heart be troubled. And you say, why? Well, He's going to go on to explain. He's going to go on to explain. How about verse 2? We can stop after verse 1 and acknowledge what we've already witnessed and heard if we think about it makes 7940 State Street better than Paris. Just flat out. To the degree that you can embrace that and know that your life will change forever. Now, if you're feeling good and when you're breathing your last breaths, And don't give a rip about Paris. Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And here he goes. He's going to explain. Verse 2. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? That assumes... His ascension. He's going to prepare a place. He's going to be with his, with his Father. And ascension assumes resurrection. He's going to be victorious. He's already been talking about going to the cross. It's not like, you know, uh, kind of a gamble here. Not really sure how it's going to turn out. No, He's been talking since chapter 2. It's going to turn out. He is the sinless one. He is the righteous one. He can't stay dead. It would be wrong for him to stay dead. So all of this is being assumed in these great statements. I'm going to go prepare a place for you. It's a done deal. It's a given. That's why you can believe in me. By the way, if it weren't a done deal and if it weren't for sure, he couldn't say that, could he? You believe in me? I'm going to go do that and I'm going to do it. Notice he does say for you. Just extreme goodness. Personally prepared by the unique son. Okay, let's move on. We said lots about that last time. I'm using self-control. It's an amazing fruit of the spirit. Verse three. And if I go and prepare a place for you, and he's going to, he just said that, I will come again and will take you to myself and where I am you may be also. I'm leaving, but I'm coming back. Notice, I'm coming back, not so you can have endless debates and discussions and colored charts to try to figure out when. Not that there's no place for wanting to know things. I'm coming back. I'm coming back for you. It's meant to be encouraging. It's meant to be personal. It's meant to be the cure for your troubles. Coming back for you. It's awesome. Really is awesome. If this is all I knew, I'd want to know more. (laughs) But I would know a lot. It changes everything. Okay, verse 4, and you know the way to where I'm going. So he's going to the Father, we're going to see, we have seen, and he says, you know the way. Jesus has been making himself so clear that he says, you know the way. Verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. So he not only doesn't know the way, and Jesus says he's supposed to know the way, he doesn't even know the where. So when you're discouraged talking to people and they don't seem to get it, just know it might be your lack of clarity. It might mean you're perfectly clear because Jesus was perfectly clear, and two times two is still still 17. Then the verse. Let's call it the verse. It's the verse because it's commonly agreed upon. This really is the verse. (laughs) In in John, this is the core of the whole thing. How about verse 6? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. So the where I'm going is to the Father, and the way to the Father is me. And this is no surprise to anyone in this room who's read anything else in John. It's all been about this. It's all been about the fact that no one has ever seen God, chapter 1, but Jesus comes and Jesus not only reveals God, he interprets God. Okay? And all along he's been making this clear. So when Jesus says, hey, this, uh, what he says in verse 6, it's what he's been saying all along. I am the way. Believe in me, believe in me, believe in me. The reason you believe in him is because he's the way. I am the way, right? Think of mediator, reconciliation. Everyone's sinful and violates God's commandments. Jesus is the fulfiller of the law. Jesus is the one who goes and bears the penalty for us as lawbreakers, violators of God's commandments. Jesus is the victorious one. Resurrection on behalf of everyone who would believe in him. He is also the firstborn from the dead. He's our resurrection power, right? I'm the way to God. And I'm the truth, a revelation kind of term. I'm the true interpretation of God among all these others. And there were plenty then, plenty, plenty now. And I'm the life. Well, I've already talked about that because I'm the resurrection life. I am the do this and live life. I'm the one. I'm the way. It's me. It's amazing. Do you notice he doesn't say, I'm your truth among many truths. No, he's being very deliberate. I'm the truth. All of this assumes what he's already covered. There's only one God, the maker of heaven and earth. He's the one. He's the unseen God. Because of sin, he's the unknowable God even. But I am the way because God has one son sent to earth. I am the truth and I am the life. Right? not politically correct but not a blip on the screen somehow where did that come from no it comes from the greater narrative let's keep moving lest this be three parts see there's, there's so much going on here that I think for about the next I don't know we, we could just keep doing this And I could say different things every time. Emphasize different things. We could be like some of the Puritans, you know. We're going to do John 14 for the next 40 years. (laughs) Probably not a good idea. But. But please do notice uh, the, the context, which we forget about sometimes. What led this was, do not let what? Do not let your heart be troubled. I'm the way. I'm the truth. And I'm the life. There's no one like me. He's calling them to believe in him. That's how you can not have a troubled heart. You can have confidence. Confidence. How can we know who in the world God is? How can we know what he requires? There's so many different options. There's so many different ideas and philosophies and debates about this, that, and the other thing. That's troubling. He so said, don't let your heart be troubled. I'm the way. Oh, huh, this is amazing. Okay. Okay. Then it says in verse 6, No one comes to the Father, that's the where, except through me. Why would would Jesus say such a thing? He would say such a thing because that's what's true. And to say anything else would not be true. The early church believed this, Acts chapter 4, verse 12. In the midst of polytheism, polytheism, Pluralism. Acts four twelve. Before we move on, just remember, remember, remember. I'm just giving you basic ABC's Christianity, and most of you know this. But it's kind of weird. We live in a culture where people think they know what Christianity teaches, and then someone says what Christianity teaches and people freak out like that's not what Christians are supposed to believe. <laughs> and Maybe that means we've not done a very good job of teaching what Christianity is. Of course Christians believe that Jesus is exclusively the way to heaven. John 14, Acts 4, all of John. That's why we send missionaries. That's why we tell people the good news of Christ. And That's why we urge people to believe in Jesus. Because he's the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father but by him. Super straightforward. And it's rich and deep and profound in the greater context of John's narrative in Jesus' life. So the way to heaven, the way to the Father's house is... Not the broad road. Not the many ways. Not as long as you're a good person. Not, oh, if you're an American. No. It's if you believe in Jesus, you trust in Jesus, you're resting in Him. It's as clear as could be. As clear as could be. We live in a time where the one requirement for eternal life is what? It's death. If you die, you go to heaven. It's total paganism. Believe in me, Jesus says. Trust in me. He's the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father but through him maybe if I can encourage you as you interact with people and talk about Christ and the gospel, maybe you could even pray that you'd get good at explaining who Jesus is and not just John 14, 6. I mean, some people just need to hear John 14, 6. Especially people who say they're Christians and say there are many ways. But it really is amazing and it's not just a beat somebody over the head kind of club in light of all that we've seen in the first 14 13 chapters. By now, it makes all the sense in the world for Jesus to say this. I want to get better and better at explaining who Jesus is in the big picture of things, in the big storyline of things. I want you to as well. Now we need to move on. Verse 7 If you had known me, here's a corrective to the disciples. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know Him and have seen Him. So things are going to change for the better. But, but even maybe right in your margin, John one i I've already alluded to it. If you'd known me, you would have known my Father also. That's because Jesus came and... I love the word that's used in John 1.18. The Greek word that's used there is the word exegeted in English, interpreted. You got all these people, Romans 1 style, all these people walking around. Who's God? Don't know. To me, God is this. To me, God is that. To me, God is. To me, God is. To me, God is. To me, God is. Right? It's like a religion. The, to me, God is. And I'm not speaking in tongues. If I say it three more times, I might. But... <laughs> Romans one talks about foolish speculations, because of darkened hearts, because of sin. That's just what we do. To me, God is this. To me, God is that. To me, God acts like this. To me, God is—it's to me, God is cult. Jesus came. It says in John 1.18, He has made Him known. Jesus came and exegeted God. Exegete is a fancy term for interpret. So Jesus came to reveal God, but he didn't just come to reveal God. He came to reveal God and interpret God. So the unknown God can be known. 7940 State Street's a pretty good place to be today. Wow! This is staggering to the mind. This is moving to the heart. This is absolutely amazing. If it were talking, if this were anyone other than Jesus saying these things, I would say he's crazy. That would be a right conclusion. How about verse 8? Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. It's kind of like, you know, a wallet size or 8 by 10 would do. You know what I mean? You know, it's just kind of like, that, that, just show us. Maybe he means something more sophisticated and, and we, just give us a theophany. Just give us a special kind of Moses kind of vision. That would be enough because that would be better. See, that's, it's not better. Those things were prefiguring. What's better is the one who comes and exegetes. He's the better one. Verse 9, Jesus said to him, said to him, Have I been with you so long, and still do you not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Where have you been? Right? That takes us back to chapter 1, by the way, which previews the whole book. He's made Him known, truly and genuinely. Verse 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does His works. So He's been doing the works of the Father. And they're in union together. Verse 11. Believe in me. Believe me, excuse me, that I am in the Father and the Father is in me or else believe on account of the works themselves. I'm the revelation and the interpretation and everything I do is doing His works. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Now, I won't lie to you, that's some complex stuff being said. Now we're now we're in the depths of Christian Trinitarianism. These are just some of the building blocks. Why Christians have said, do say, and will continue to say, there is only one God who has always been God and always will be God. And the Father is God, and the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. There aren't three gods. There's only one God. And so then we have to get more sophisticated, and we say there's one God and three persons, and we don't mean humans. And notice I said the word mystery. Not contradiction, but mystery. And you go, uh, that's where I have to push my t- chair away from the table and go, I-, I don't really get it. But I believe the Bible is true because Jesus believed the Bible was true. And so I conclude there's one God who's always been God, always will be God, and that one God eternally exists in three persons Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Spirit is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Father's not the Son, the Son's not. You get the idea. And as I think Augustine said, if you deny this, you'll lose your soul. And if you try to understand it exhaustively, extensively, is the idea, you'll lose your mind. This, this could be a whole good sermon series, too. It won't be today. But just so you're aware, it's, it's not a logical contradiction. Christians are not saying, and have never been saying, unless they're really bad Christians that there is one God and three gods. We're not saying that. There's only one God, three persons, okay? There's distinction. Other Christians who come before us have said it's a good idea when you're reading the Bible in light of all the data to emphasize the one. And as soon as you've emphasized the one, it's a good idea to emphasize the three, <laughs> a mystery because I can't exhaustively comprehend it. Let me give you an illustration of the Trinity. (laughs) I refuse to. Be here a long time. Be here a long time. They're all bad. Because Jesus isn't part of God. And the Father's not part of God, and the Spirit's not part of God. They're each fully God. No one would make it up, it's too complicated. Just yesterday, I looked up who said when you emphasize the one, you should emphasize the three, and I just quick got online. And, and one of the first hits that came from like an, a, Christian, a Christian apologetics kind of thing, teaching Christianity, and it was, I just saw in the preview from Google, it talked about the different forms of God. And I thought, you don't talk like that. It's not the different forms of God that assumes that one becomes the other, becomes the other, and they take on different forms. We're in the deep end of the pool right now, by the way. But this is just, this is orthodox, basic, 101, Christian Trinitarianism. Jesus has, the Son has revealed the Father, They're united in what they do. They're together. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. This is complicated stuff. But it's in the context. Don't let your heart be troubled. Because you know that you know that you know that you know that you know in light of what I've done and what I've taught and what you've seen that I'm his son and he's my father and I'm here doing his works. And if you believe in me, Jesus says, you can have full confidence that when I leave, I go to prepare a place for you. It's all meant to be comforting. And the emphasis here is on the union between the father and the son. And that's meant to be encouraging, but I couldn't resist to talk a little bit about the sophistication of all of Verse 12, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me, so earnestly, sincerely, and yet firmly, this is super important, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me, trusts in me, rests in me, confides or has confidence in me, will also do the works that I do. Verse 10, called them the Father's works. So you've got the Father's works, now the Son's works and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. We're just going to skip this part and close in prayer. (laughs) We're not going to. Here's the thing. I want you to join me on this adventure, okay? I want you to remember this is all meant to encourage, okay? But... I'm going to be honest and say, this is complicated. What does he mean? This has been used in all kinds of weird ways. And sometimes we have to say, this is what it doesn't mean. This is what it doesn't mean. This is what it doesn't mean. And then we're left with a whole bunch of this is what it doesn't mean. And we're not encouraged. It's, it's not meant to be there for that reason. So just because it's been abused or it's complicated, we, let's, make some, let's make some progress so we can say, that's encouraging. It's meant to be encouraging okay, the works that I do, if you believe in Jesus, that's eternal life. We've already seen that. But also, you'll do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. And you have to stop and say, greater in what sense? Greater in inherent power and authority? No, can't be. Jesus is the, is the one who raises Lazarus from the dead by the time he, King James, stinketh, right? So you've got decay, decomposition, and Jesus raises him from the dead. And do, no, do notice it says, whoever believes. So if that's what's meant, we could all just do a little field trip afterward and go to Forest Lawn. And if you believe in Jesus, you can. Just, I, I, I'm just going to start, I'm going to call out my mom's name, my dad's name, my grandparents' name. Greater works, Jesus, the substitute who's going to atone for sins and be raised from the dead, and he says he will raise himself from the dead, rebuild the temple, we have greater, we're going to do greater works than that? I don't think so. No. But then but, but what is it? Sometimes we say, well, it's just the, the apostles did. No, there are times when the apostles wanted to heal people and couldn't. That was never the case with Jesus. They did amazing things. Don't get me wrong. They're the apostles of Jesus. So then we're getting warmer and we say, well. Greater works because they're greater in number. Jesus' public ministry, three years-ish. By the time you have the apostles and they're doing miracles and doing all the things that they're doing, if we're going to talk about that, that it, the, the, the gospel launches far beyond the little region where Jesus was. But it doesn't just say apostles. It says whoever believes. So what is it? Here's a hint. I know this feels like Bible class, but we have to understand how to read the Bible. I'm trying to be a good example so you could be encouraged instead of just skipping over it. So bear with me. It is going to be a greater era. I wouldn't die for this interpretation, by the way. We don't have to fight about it. We don't have to argue about it. We don't even have to talk about it. But just let me help you try to think about this. To go from the Old Covenant era Epic, economy, whatever kind of word you'd like to, to, to use, into the New Covenant era, economy, epic, is to move from lesser to greater. Okay? I know that that's true. Jesus is going to go to the cross, but we're still anticipating that. Okay? Jesus is going to fulfill the law. It's been happening, and it's going to happen climactically when he goes to the cross. He's going to be raised from the dead, Right? He will be vindicated. He's going to ascend and then intercede as our high priest seated in heaven, claiming us as his own. We do go from lesser to greater. It's a greater era in redemptive history. That's why it's called the new covenant. It's the better covenant. It's what the Old Testament even talked about as a new covenant. And when you're talking about a new covenant, you're assuming that there's something that eventually will be called old there's something coming that's going to be better okay i think that gives us some traction in matthew 11:11, john the baptist is considered the greatest man who ever lived it wasn't moses wasn't abraham wasn't jonah wasn't daniel he was the greatest man who ever lived and it wasn't because of his fashion sense it's because he was the final prophet who would announce the one who's coming, Jesus. That's what made him the greatest. He's the forerunner, we say sometimes. And what's interesting is in Matthew eleven eleven, it says, Yet the one who who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. We're moving to something. He's the greatest. And you know what? Even the least is going to be even greater than him. This is what we've been waiting for, this era. So I think we're on to something when Jesus says, whoever believes in me is going to do greater works than I did. We're in a greater time. The gospel work of redemption has been accomplished. Oh, there's another issue. We're going to get to this next week, I promise. He's going to talk about the giving of the Spirit. The Spirit's going to be given to the believers in a new way with a new kind of power. And what's interesting there is to do His commandments, to do His works. So it's newer, better, greater in that sense. See, this is in the context. Okay, one final thing. And again, I wouldn't die for this. But think John 13, 14, and 15. Some people hold this view, I'm not alone, not everybody does who I would respect. But some do. John 13, Jesus says he it says he loved his own, he loved them even to the very end, love. And he washes their feet as an act of sacrificial love. Giving them what they don't deserve. Loves them. Then you move on in chapter 13 and Jesus talks about this commandment to love one another. Okay? He's calling believers to be distinguished and stand out because they love one another even when they're not deserving. It's a unique kind of Christian love. A special kind of love. And He wants them to do that. And now in chapter 14 when the coming of the Spirit comes it's going to be again to do His commandments I'm of the opinion that when he talks about the greater works, he's talking about works of love. He's talking about the fruit of the Spirit starting with love. You're going to have the Spirit, and you're going to be uniquely empowered to love one another, and you'll be loving one another in a unique and special way more than a foot washing. And believers that will do this everywhere because all believers will have the Spirit. And this is a greater work. Greater in number, yes. Greater in scope. Well, that's a long way to deal with a challenging passage, but I hope it's at least helpful to try to think through. And let's find some encouragement in application. You're supposed to love one another. I'm supposed to love you, you're supposed to love me, even in the context of when we're not very lovely. Humility, sacrifice for those who don't deserve it. That's a great, great work of God. (laughs) It's the fruit of the Spirit, the Spirit who's going to be uniquely given. So how about this? When you love dopey, mopey, goofball, Pat, you love Pat when Pat doesn't deserve to be loved. And you, you actually love me. It's the fruit of the Spirit in your life. And it is indeed a great work. It is a work of God to love those who don't deserve to be loved. And you can say, you know what? This is it. I, I think this is it. This is so encouraging. We're not left alone and we're doing great works. This is amazing that this happens. And it happens all over the place. Sadly, it doesn't always happen. But John 15, we're going to be challenged to, to have it really be an emphasis. But for, for you, the next time you love someone who doesn't deserve it, praise God and say, God, thank you for doing this work in my life. How about this? I'll go so far as to say you are doing the works of God. The Son says you're going to do greater works and He has been doing the works of the Father. So you've got the Father's work, you could even say of giving His Son as an act of love, chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. You've got the Son demonstrating His great love and He's doing the works of the Father. And now He calls us to do these greater works, certainly greater in number. And how does it happen, Trinitarian Christians? by the power of the Spirit, who's continuing to carry out those works, bearing the fruit of the Spirit. I think we should be more impressed with our good works, and I don't mean in a self-congratulatory, we're so awesome way. I've got fruit in my life, I'm loving. This is amazing, this is amazing. And it happens because of Christ. Got one more challenging passage. We'll go fast, I promise. Or this will be a three-parter. As these greater works are being done, look at verse 13, we're going to end in 14. As these greater works are being done in Christian ministry, it says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do in the Father, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. We might as well do 14 as well, and then we'll talk about it. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you'd like to start a cult, I would use these verses. If you'd like to start a health, wealth, and prosperity cult, I'd use these verses because they've been proven to be very effective. Keep it in context. As we're doing... These great works, I'm suggesting that they're these great works of love. As we're carrying out the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ in His name, because we're His followers, we're believers, we belong to Him, by the power of His Spirit, as we're doing His ministry, anything we ask in His name, He will do. That's not complicated if we just keep it in the flow of things. This is why, this is why John in the same author of this gospel account says in John, I think it's John 5, if you ask according to his will, he'll do it. That's another way of saying this. This is not the the genie in the bottle. And as long as I say in Jesus' name, there's going to be a Ferrari outside. It's not it. Try it, I dare you you probably get struck by lightning. You're, you're, you're stupid. Don't, don't do it. But there are supposed Bible teachers that, that say these kinds of things. Anything in Jesus' name. Yeah, anything in context. According to His will, even chapter 5 of 1 John. But think about this. Lots of you work for companies. And at work, if you're a good worker, it's how it's supposed to be, you represent them. You act in their name. You act on their behalf. And if you're a good worker, you do things according to their will in their name. When you're sent to the, this illustration won't hold up forever, or uh, it's not perfect, but when you're sent, because you work for a construction company, to pick up the new van at the Mercedes dealer, because they have the panel vans, you know, for, for de- making deliveries, you go there and you do it, and you, because you're representing your company. But you don't say, and I'll take two convertibles, a his and hers version for my wife and I. That's not acting according to the will of your company. That that would be a violation. You don't do that in the name of your company. I know, the illustration is not great. But we're used to representing people and carrying out their wishes. If you buy something with the company credit card, you buy what the company wants you to buy. Or else... Ask anything as you're doing my ministry, Jesus says. As you are carrying out this great, great ministry of mine, I'm leaving you. I'm not leaving you orphans. I'm going to give you my spirit to empower you. And if you need something, you just ask. Ask in my name because you represent me. Now, see, we talk about what it didn't mean, but I want you to be encouraged by what it does mean. It's all in the context of encouragement. I don't want you to run from that verse because your charismatic friends always quote it to you and you whimper away and and are a coward and you think, I just, I don't know. I want you to be emboldened and encouraged. You know what? God, help me to do this. I'm seeking to do what you want me to do with unbelievers, with believers. Maybe in our context, this love is so hard and this is difficult. God, help me to have success and victory to do this and to carry out this great work of loving in a way that imitates your great love for us at the cross. You think Jesus is going to answer? Ask me anything in relation to that, and I'll answer. See, that's good. That makes me want to pray. Pray with confidence. It's awesome. We need to be done. Hallelujah, right? Praise the Lord. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the Son. Thank you for yourself. And thank you for giving us great gifts, the gifts that we need. Thank you that you've called us to do great works in this world. My prayer for us this morning as we leave that we would be doing these kinds of great works and that we would be impressed, not with ourselves, but we would be impressed with you the one who's commissioned us, the one who's empowered us. And we're asking now and continue to ask for help that we would honor you and glorify you as we do your works on earth. In Jesus' name, amen.